welcome to BIB Today, the podcast from the newsroom of Business in Vancouver. I'm Kirk LaPointe, publisher and editor-in-chief. The BC NDP did what most everyone expected late Wednesday and disqualified Angela Apadurai as a candidate for its leadership, rendering Attorney General David Eby as the province's 37th premier. The party executive, following a report from its chief returning officer, determined Apadurai's campaign had breached rules on selling memberships. Later today, she's expected to fight that ruling, which has created a significant split in the party. She had clearly enticed a lot of new members, including a lot of young members, into the party. To discuss this, I brought into our discussion today Mario Canseco. He's the president of the public research firm Research Co. and veteran legislative reporter Rob Shaw. Both of them write for us at BIB, at Glacier Media, and Rob is also at our news site, The Orca, where he divides his time with Czech television in Victoria. Rob, uh, let's start. Membership controversies are nothing new to leadership tribes. Why did this one go sideways? Yeah, I can't think of a leadership race that I've covered without a membership controversy, except for John Horgan's acclamation. Uh, They go all the way back. They're usually around membership signups because parties bring in thousands and thousands of new people. How do they sign them up? Who are they? Uh, Are they valid? There are always the issues. How do they vote? The pins on how people vote have have, uh, dragged the liberals in the last two leadership races. This one is a little bit different because the allegations are essentially that the environmental groups that propped up a Padurai, mostly the Dogwood Initiative, kind of found a way to contribute to her campaign through their own paid staff, their own phone banks, their own organizing in a way that the NDP outlawed after 2018 when it changed the election rules to ban corporate and union donations. Basically, you can't run a parallel campaign on the side using paid staff. It's called an in-kind contribution to the the core campaign. So there was that. Then there was the issue of what the NDP calls fraudulent members, which are people that the Paderai campaign signed up who are also members of another party, which isn't allowed, mainly the BC Greens. And those two things conspired, according to Elizabeth Cull, the chief electoral officer who investigated this into a tainting of the NDP's membership list. She decided that a Paderai couldn't be fined. That wouldn't be enough. She, their members couldn't be disqualified because that would hurt legitimate members. So they turfed her, um, which I think they were always going to do. She, she was never going to win this race because the NDP could not allow that. The entire yeah. caucus and cabinet had endorsed the other person, David Eby. It, it functionally was impossible. So when she comes out and says, you know, everyone was against me from the start, that is true. That is completely true. But the other issue is it's possible that the campaign cheated a little bit as well. So those two things end us where we are, which is a gigantic self-inflicted, self-owned mess that, um, you know, <laughs> David Eby David has won the, the chalice cup, uh, I guess, the uh, poison cup or whatever it is. But that's where yeah. we're at. Mario, who was she bringing into the party and, and, and why... Is that such a factor in this decision? Well, I think they were really terrified about the possibility of having somebody who wasn't really a member of the party becoming premier. You know, the the whole discussion about um, having somebody like that um, deciding what the cabinet's going to look like, as somebody who had no support from caucus. Um, it's definitely a prospect that was terrifying as far as the type of signatures that they were getting. Um, it's really complex uh, when we ask British Columbians how they felt about either of them becoming leader of the NDP. It's clear that there's an advantage to David Eby, particularly 
with the older demographic, which is the one that wins elections, uh, but also connecting very well with women. So I think there's also a sense uh, that uh, her candidacy, if she had become the leader of the NDP, was going to be very, very problematic to deal with, not only because of the caucus concerns, but also because you need to build a campaign around a person who has no political experience. It's a lot easier to do uh, in, in some cases municipally. Uh, but on a BC-wide campaign, it, it really uh, sets the stage for something way more complicated down the road. Now, where does she go from here? Are we going to have some sort of Anjali, Quebec Solidaire type party that is going to appeal to young people? Is something going to happen with all of those signups? Uh, if that is the case, then that is also detrimental for the NDP because that is coming out of their base. And, and the, it's certainly good news for the BC Liberal or BC United, whatever they are called in the next election. Yeah. Uh, Rob, do you think there is any way for the NDP to have handled this in such a way that could have kept her somewhat in this fold and not rendered this as the split that it is? I, I don't think so because she ran her campaign the way she ran it. And it was clearly in some cases skirting um, the rules. And, you know, the Dogwood Initiative, which is the main offender, according to the Cull Report, I talked to their communications uh, director, Kai Nagata, very early on, and he said, yeah, we crafted a campaign that takes advantage of where the Elections Act is silent. Now, OK, if that's if that's your plan, you better be darn clear and sure that you are walking this tightrope between legality and illegality of what's allowed. And I, I think Dogwood missed the mark on that. And they cost a Paterai, um, depending on how you look on it, they're, they're either responsible for the incredible membership signups um, or they cost her the campaign, one or the other. But um, if she had run, I think, what the NDP would have preferred to see, which is, you know, kind of a, yeah, challenge David Eby a little bit, attend some of the debates, give him a kind of, you know, here and there poke and then stand on the stage on election night when she loses, raising his hand, they would have asked her to come in as a candidate in the next election. But she didn't want to play that game. She wanted to win. She was the outsider. She wanted to change. She reminds me of New Democrat MLAs when they wanted to join the NDP opposition, a young George Heyman, a young David Eby who want to change the world. And they don't have a lot of time for the stupid old political structures that are standing in their way. And so her campaign was designed to disrupt. And I don't think the NDP could have found a way to, to um, you know, soften it enough to bring it into the fold. It, it is what it is. And we are where we are. And unfortunately, she's, she's an incredible candidate. Like I've interviewed her multiple times. She's yeah, articulate. Absolutely. She's bright. She's well-spoken. She can stay on message. I think she's better than most of the NDP backbench and half of the cabinet. And the fact that they can't use her that the NDP are unable to attract the next generation of MLAs like her, that is a huge problem for the party. And they, and that's an entirely different discussion, I think. Yeah, Mario, I mean, that, that points, though, to some of your research, which is that the party is, like a lot of political parties at times, quite aged and, and in search of the next generation. Uh, certainly at a federal level, uh, before Jagmeet Singh came along, uh, there were really concerns about the NDP fading as a national entity and maybe seeding a lot of the left of center support in the country, especially the emerging one that was quite more concerned about climate issues, for instance, and social justice to the Greens. That never materialized, but could it materialize now, do you think? 
I think it's a very tough undertaking, uh, particularly because we're coming off one of the most popular premiers in BC history, certainly the most popular in this century. Um, he's leaving office with an approval rating of 57%. Uh, this compares very well with what we saw with Christy Clark at less than 40% or what we saw with Gordon Campbell at less than 10%. So supplanting so somebody who's that popular it's always going to be complicated. And I think it's going to be a very hard first 100 days in office for David Eby as far as what type of cabinet shuffle he does. The other thing that is quite crucial for me is uh, we see the debate on housing really affecting young people, very concerned about the way things are going. But the one thing that really struck me at our findings uh, last week is um, just how much healthcare has grown as an issue. And we're just coming off an election in Quebec uh, where the party that's in power connected on an issue that a lot of seniors care about and ended up winning a massive majority mandate. So whoever connects well on the healthcare file is going to win the next election. I don't think it's going to be necessarily a housing election, uh, but there's a lot of concern, particularly from older British Columbians uh, who are essentially saying, thank you for the stewardship that you provided during the COVID-19 pandemic. But now it's time to get back to the healthcare system the way we wanted to. And it's just not there at this point with the team that they have at their disposal. So one of the biggest decisions that David Eve is going to have to take is whether he keeps Adrian Dix in health or whether he does something different about it. Because that is the thing that is going to get the over 55 voter motivated. It's not housing. It's not housing starts. It's not climate change. It's healthcare, And those are the voters that win you elections. Yeah, a couple of things here, Rob, uh, to go back on. One, um, had they disqualified her right at the get-go, um, do you think another candidate would have come in to challenge David Eby? Oh, for sure. I mean, there's there's multiple problems, I think, in how this race was done. And the first is there wasn't another candidate. And that would have, I think, allowed people to express, um, you know, some type of displeasure with the idea of, of handing the premiership from one middle-aged older white guy to another middle-aged older white guy. Uh, and that makes a lot of new Democrats uncomfortable. Um, but Ravi Kalon set the tone for that. He was David Eby's main rival, and he chose not only to, to step out of the race, but to co-chair Eby's campaign. And I know. that set in motion a series of cascading events where all the MLAs and caucus members and cabinet ministers panicked and endorsed Eby because they wanted to keep their jobs and suck up to the new leader. So was that a surprising thing, by the way, as it was to me? It was, it was, yeah. it was Alan's determination not to run because it even seemed that John Horgan at times was putting him onto the stage, you know, like, hey, I think he uh, was I'm not deigning you my successor, but I'd sure like you to run, you know, mm -hmm. that kind of thing. I think Ravi was a more loyal New Democrat, a traditional New Democrat who worked in the party a long time. E.B. is a New Democrat of convenience who joined as an activist uh, uh, over the. So, yeah, they, the establishment wanted Ravi. They reluctantly took E.B. And there was no outlet for anyone else. If Selena Robinson had run or someone else would run, that, that would have helped, I think, uh, allow people to have a different choice that would then coalesce back with EB. The second problem is the NDP let its membership base atrophy to 11,000 members. And yeah. that left it open and vulnerable to a hostile takeover, as they put it, by anyone. I mean, that's not a lot of members that that like, you know, the liberals have 40,000 members now. They went through a leadership race, so they're a little bit higher. But like, so those two things started the race in the bad position for the NDP and they allowed this to get worse. And yes, they should, they should have, 
perhaps disqualified her earlier, but they set the, the length of the race and it had to allow time for people to sign up members, 90 day window to sign up members in the NDP constitution. So you had to give three months to do signups and then you hit the candidate cutoff and then you pay the money and then they approve the candidacy. So it was kind of a fast timeline, but it felt slow because the whole thing was an unmitigated disaster. And and for them, every day was like a year uh, in, in political hell. Sure. Uh, Mario, I'll ask you and Rob this question. Uh, you know, it, what's clear is that with, say, uh, Anjali, and of course, even with Pierre Polyev, you ended up with these massive leadership surges, and to some degree, uh, Kevin Falcon, too. Um, is there any sense in determining that maybe these the problem with these races is that they become membership drives and not so much, you know, actual, uh, you know, fights for the party's soul? And, and would would it not be better in some way to say to freeze memberships the day that a that a you know a, a leader steps down or is pushed out? What do you think, Mario? I think it certainly would help, um, partly because this becomes a question uh, almost like a girl guides contest. Who can sell the most? Uh, we saw something like this at the federal level with the NDP. In the early stages, everybody thought, well, Jagmeet Singh, it, it's so nice to have a person from an ethnic minority running. And then he ends up winning handily when a lot of people in the early stages expected somebody else to be the leader. Um, this raises the question, you know, is this about connecting with a specific group that cares about climate change? Or could we conceivably have had a candidate, let's say, who's more interested in mining, who's more interested in industry, signing up members and saying, hey, let's organize and try to take over the NDP because we can. So yeah. I think that is part of the problem. It's not necessarily that there's this fantastic group uh, full of people who want to see something changing. You know, they were motivated by what they had in front of them. But that could very easily have happened with a candidate who was running on a platform related to changing healthcare or making, uh, you know, more money from other sources or expanding the industry. So I think that is part of the essence of the argument here. Um, yeah. Are we better off in a situation where this leadership races are organized by elections BC? You know, is this something that we should be considering? We asked people earlier this year and they said, this makes sense. You know, this is the way in which other countries do it. You know, we're nowhere near having an actual primary system like they do in the States. Uh, but the notion that the party is the one who is handling the rules, telling you who can run and who can be disqualified is not something that is palatable for most British Columbians. Well, one of Angeli's uh, concerns, I think, that she's expressed in the last couple of days, Rob, fits with that too, which is that somehow elections BC gave an interpretation of the rules midway into this and that largely she was uh, penalized retroactively for what had been happening with the Dogwood Initiative. But uh, what's your take on the idea of, of maybe looking at a different way to not make these campaigns all about selling $10 memberships? Yeah, I mean, I think it it makes sense whether that's Elections BC. Uh, you know, Elections BC, I think, is about administering the rules in a fair way because these are private clubs. They're private societies that set their own race rules they set their own referee of the rules and they do their own investigations of the rules. And what we've constantly seen is when someone breaks the rules in different parties, there's inconsistent penalties. And if the person breaks the rules and wins, there's no penalties at all because they wipe out all those officials and then the investigation into whatever they did disappears. So that process could be fixed with Elections BC, having clear rules, administering everything for the leadership races, taking that over. 
selling memberships is this age old party tradition where it raises money off of selling people, you know, memberships, bringing them in, creating a voter contact list and figuring out volunteers, you know, the parties like that. And it's not, it's not that that was the problem uh, here in, in a way. It was that the entire caucus and cabinet of David Eby endorsing him did a pretty poor job signing up members for him. And they got outworked, out hustled, out organized by the environmental movement, which did a better job, quite frankly. And so, you know, <laughs> that's that's the, if we had a neutral NDP leadership race in which everyone had to follow the rules, David Eby might be in trouble right now, depending yeah. on whether a Paterite yeah. actually signed up members legally. Um, and parties, they, they, if parties they, don't want that. No, but it, but and that and that's a good question to to start with here again again on this one. Had they just simply disqualified the members that they thought had been problematically raised, she would still be a contender here. Yeah. Right? Well, Colt Colt in her report talks about the idea of doing that. You could either disqualify a bunch of members, but they they don't have the capacity to audit them all. Or you could disqualify everyone from a certain date, or you could disqualify all the new members and just let the original base do it. And she said that sends a message to the party, um, to the public that uh, you're, you know, joining the NDP is going to be really hard and we might throw you out. And they didn't want to leave that that kind of uh, taste in the public's mouth. Also, they were looking for reasons to disqualify her. So that that option would have still forced EB to do two months of debate before he becomes premier. And maybe he maybe he wins with a very slim margin to this person from nowhere and becomes premier hobbled by a race in which he was embarrassed. And that would have been bad for him as well. Yeah, it's just that if, if she would have accepted that uh, compromise in the end and lost, it... <laughs> The result, Mario, for the NDP would have at least been some sense of unity. I don't see that sense of unity this morning, and I don't think I'm going to see it for a long time. You, you point to you know his his impending cabinet shuffle and those types of things, but can this really wash away for him? Do you think, Mario? I don't think the opposition is going to allow them uh, to walk away from this. Uh, it becomes important for the Green Party to connect and to say to people, if you're dissatisfied with the fact that the NDP decided to not allow somebody who cares about climate change to become leader, join us. We're here. This is the party that you should be joining. This is These are the candidates that you should be supporting. For the BC Liberals, it's important to remind people, you know, you haven't really been elected. You're not somebody who was supported by a lot of people. This is essentially a coronation. And, you know, we're going to hold you accountable when it comes to something like that. So you miss the opportunity to have uh, the, the cleansing moment of everybody holding hands, everybody saying we're going to work together for this party. Coronations can be quite complicated. Um, they lead to people who don't do well in elections, or in the case of Justin Trudeau, they lead to people who win massive majorities. But it's all in the way in which you're going to be selling this. It's more complicated to do it when you're the government in power. And there's yeah. a record that you need to protect, and you need to protect that record without your largest and most important asset, which is the popularity of the current premier. Okay, so uh, in the time we've got left, uh, let's talk a little bit, uh, first off, about what she now does. Rob, uh, I expect that, you know, as, as we're recording this, she hasn't uh, held her news conference yet, but 
uh, I would expect that she's still uh, deciding somehow on an appeal of some sort. She's not going to walk away from this, I don't think. Maybe you have a different opinion. But what happens to her here now? Like, what kind of a political entity is she uh, in the days and weeks and months ahead, do you think? Well, I think her appeals are mostly exhausted. The The next step will be whether she wants to challenge this in the probably BC Supreme Court. Yeah. Um, and that could happen. Um, her immediate sort of impact is to embarrass David Eby. She's going to stand outside the legislature today and say the old boys club inside is passing power around while the people are out here. The other thing that's going to happen is John Horgan is holding an availability today where he's going to take another one for the team um, by David. Where the hell is David Eby? I guess is an interesting question at this point. Where is he? He hasn't addressed any of this. He's I, I don't. I don't know. So John Horgan is going to appear this afternoon and take questions on the leadership race and smooth this over again. And then at some point, EB is going to have to come out and talk about this and the rest of his election platform, which we never saw, um, and is when he's going to take power. The longer term problem for the NDP is a patterized supporters signed up so many people um, and those memberships aren't disqualified that they have taken over many of the riding associations that the NDP control. And we saw mm. this play out with a letter sent by Cabinet Minister Nicholas Simon's riding association publicly saying, don't disqualify Paterai, she should run. And so I'm told some other riding associations, if you called the nomination right now, the existing incumbent uh, MLA slash minister in some cases would lose. So the long question game for the New Democrats is, will the Paterai movement take control of the individual riding associations and force candidates onto the next premier, David Eby, that he doesn't want. And I don't know. I don't know if they want to play that long game. If it's two years to an election, do they want to stick around and fumble in the weeds? Do, do, who knows? But what but they the could. Other option is there really for that group? It, you know, it's it, well, they it go to the Greens, want. I guess, maybe. If, yeah. But I'm not sure the Greens want them because they no. would take over the Greens. And, right. and that would, so... <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. They had an opportunity with the Liberals about a year ago, I guess. You know, this, yeah. We kind of ran out of parties. Um, yeah. it, not to joke about it, but I mean, that, that would be a serious uh, incursion into an established party and would really throw them into a, a situation. So, Mario, the last thing then is uh, what does Kevin Falcon smartly do about this? Uh, I think he looks at it and analyzes the situation make sure that he mentions this a lot in the next few months. Uh, talk about the fact that this isn't something that should have happened, that he's just going off a leadership race that was essentially more democratic in a way, even though his campaign was fined eventually for certain things that they did. Um, I think, you know, there's nobody here who has uh, completely clean hands when it comes to leadership races. So it's going to be an issue. But will people care about this two years from now? Are you going to start the next televised debate with somebody saying you shouldn't be here because you weren't elected? To me, it brings back memories of the quick win scandal back in 2011, 2012, 2013. You know, people thought there's no way the liberals are going to survive this. And then people who are voting for the liberals go, well, I don't see anything on the other side that is going to compel me to vote for them. So I'm going to stay with this party. I'm not happy that they decided to use these resources and some very well-known people to target ethnic communities and talk about apologies that they didn't really care about. Um, but on the economic front, I like what they're doing and I'm going to stay with them. So we could be in the same situation. Everybody so today is going to be very mad at David Eby. 
but two months from now, six months from now, they might just say, I'm just going to vote for the NDP again. So then it behooves David Eby to make some gestures here in the next three months, six months. Um, I'll, I'll close because we are running out of time here. I'll close with both of you. What, what do you think those gestures ought to be, Rob? Well, I think, and Mario knows better than I, I would, but I think the public is very unhappy on those big issues like healthcare and crime. And so he has some room here to swing very, very big on some policies, much like his housing plan. And I think probably blow the budget into deficit because people don't seem to really care about that right now either. That gives him room to wipe all of this away by solving or at least throwing resources at healthcare, ER closures, nursing, uh, crime, police, crown prosecutors, affordability measures, rebates. And, and, and the public will, I think, resonate with that a lot more than whatever this internal fight is. And that's his path. Now, does he have all those ideas? We don't know because we didn't get to see it in the leadership race. Does he know how to fix healthcare? No idea. Adrian Dix clearly is struggling with that. Can he do these things and with a new cabinet? I think that those first kind of six months um, or even the first budget will tell us a bit about where he's going. Yeah. And Mario, your uh, your take on this. And, and I wonder whether somehow he has to swing himself back to some of his earliest days uh, where he was more of an activist than a, than a political creature in certain respect and sort of bow to some of the things that a Paderai was was advocating here in order to say to the party, hey, you know, I haven't lost this. You know, I still have this in my vein. I think he needs to do it, uh, particularly because we know that these are issues that the NDP base, uh, the, that the NDP base cares about. Um, you know, essentially, the, the 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 way in which he could talk about this is, you know, we're, it, it's unfortunate that that I'm not having an actual leadership contest. Uh, some of the ideas that are coming from the leadership candidates uh, are, are, are things that I would like to do and things that I think most people in British Columbia are interested in uh, without swinging too much to that side. You don't want to turn this into a situation where people say, well, we could have gotten Anjali and we got David Eby to talk about everything. So it's a very delicate balance, particularly because these are things that people over the age of 55 are not going to take lightly. Uh, you need to be able to appeal to a broader base. And I think that was part of the success of the NDP in the 2017 election when, when they tied as far as voting intention. Um, the fact that people were a little bit tired of the government and you got some of those 55 and over voters to say, let's give the NDP another shot. Um, this is the danger. If you move too close to the activist wing of the party, uh, you wind up in a situation where uh, a win is not something that is within your grasp. Okay, well, we've given the party enough free advice this morning. Uh, it was good to talk to both of you, Mario and Rob. We'll talk again. It, it'd be an interesting day here, but uh, interesting few weeks. Thanks a lot, both of you, for your time, Rob Shaw and Mario Canseco. I'm Kirk LaPointe, publisher and editor-in-chief at Business of Vancouver. Thanks for watching.